Welcome back to Damn Good Brands. For today's episode, I sat down for the second time with Greg Gallant, the co-founder and CEO of Muckrack and the Shorty Awards. A lot has changed in the year since Greg and I last spoke. Muckrack has always been important to PR specialists and journalists, but with the onset of the pandemic, they've seen their use by journalists explode with their new online portfolio tool, which now is being used over a million times a month. Users are also really benefiting from the release of Muckrack Trends, which allows users to track how stories are being reported in the media in real time. It's really cool. It's a lot like Google Trends, but it is in real time, which is awesome. Greg is also the founder of the Shorty Awards for social media and the Shorty Social Good Awards, which is developed into a masterclass on cause campaigns. Today, having a social purpose is the cost of admission for brands, and it goes way beyond the corporate responsibility, CSR, of years past. Greg believes that social good is the only marketing that really matters now. Companies that thrive over the long run will now be those that successfully pivot to having a real mission that consumers can get behind. Don't forget to tune into the Shorty Awards on November 19th. Greg and I caught up on new and exciting trends in social media, how he and his companies have weathered and thrived during the storm of COVID-19, and what to expect from this year's Shorty Social Good Awards. I always really enjoy talking to Greg. He's deeply steeped in the worlds of social media and communications, and is overall a really dynamic and fascinating entrepreneur who never seems to stop hustling. To my delight, Greg also recently relaunched his podcast, Venture Voice, and kicked it off with an interview with none other than Mark Cuban, so definitely be sure to check out Greg's podcast, Venture Voice. And in the meantime, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Greg Gallant. Greg Gallant, good to see you again. Great to be back. So it's been about a year since we last spoke, and uh, I mean, a lot has gone down. But I think one thing I've noticed so frequently throughout the course of the year is Muckrack is constantly winning Best Place to Work awards. (laughs) what, uh, What has been your secret? Thank you. And it's uh, ironic that we, we win best place to work, even when we don't have a physical place to work, except for everybody's uh, everybody's living room. But I, I think a big part of it is we're big believers in giving everybody on our team a lot of ownership and a lot of trust. And that permeates through in a bunch of ways. You know, we never monitored when people came in and out of the office, even before COVID. Half our team was already remote and distributed all over the world. Okay. And even for our New York team, we let them work from home whenever they wanted. And a lot of companies used to say they had work from home policies, but it was one Friday a month if you clear it with your boss a week in advance. So, you know, really wasn't a work from home policy. For us, it was you wake up in the morning, maybe you want to work from home that day, maybe you want to work from home in the morning, come in in the afternoon. We had no policy on that. And we had people in New York who were managed by, you know, managers in uh, Ohio or Chicago or Los Angeles or even other parts of the world. So we we were always away from this idea of having a physical or or being dependent on a physical location, even though we have a beautiful, I mean, we did the last uh, interview at our office. You guys have an awesome office. Super exciting. Yeah, we were very, uh, very proud of it. But the idea was you only come to the office if you want to. Yeah. Versus most companies where it's like you better be there by 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. Yeah. You know, you better be hanging around late. So that was one big part of it. Uh, Another big part of it is just hiring great people and think, you know, talented, ambitious, uh, 
professionals want to be around others like them. And you also want to know if you're collaborating on a project, if I, if I pass the ball to you, Nick, that I know you're going to take that ball and run with it versus yeah. uh, me having to worry, you know, where's this thing going to go next? Yeah. It's kind of uh, like what Steve you know, Jobs a bunch said. Of other factors. Yeah. Yeah. Like what Steve Jobs said about it's when you hire smart people, it's silly to tell them what to do. You should let them tell you what to do. So it sounds like you largely abide by that, like hiring great people and getting out of their way and letting them actually do the work. But from a remote working perspective, it sounds like you've you've had such a advance on what ended up being just global remote working scenarios. And that must have been tremendously helpful because you essentially built your company to be able to operate remotely. And I mean, that must have been a tremendous advantage for you guys during this time period. It made the process much simpler for us. So, you know, many companies had to scramble to set up VPNs because they have servers in their office or people use office computers or they'd never done meetings before virtually. Yeah. For us, we'd been a we'd been a customer of Zoom for well over a year before the pandemic. Uh, all of our meetings already had Zoom links to them because mm -hmm. you never know who would actually be in the office or if they, you know, include people who weren't in New York. Mm hmm. Um, so there was, uh, there was that whole, that whole level we're used to doing remote meetings. Uh, also we, we structured everything to be in the cloud already. So when we saw COVID was really, um, going to make it unsafe to be in offices, we, and we, we made this call a couple of weeks before it was, uh, forced upon us by, by the, um, the regulations, of the government. Uh, we literally sat on a Sunday afternoon. We're like, don't come in tomorrow. Yeah. Office is closed. And that was it. We didn't have to do anything else. There was no, hey, come and pick up this device yeah. or, oh, my God, how are we going to meet tomorrow? So the transition as a company was really simple. And even more so when I talked to our, uh, you know, our remote only employees who, who live in cities without anyone else at our company. Uh, who worked there, mm -hmm. they were saying that in a way for them, it, it, you know, that the, uh, in some case, I mean, in some cases uh, it changed people's, you know, childcare situations and created a lot of challenge. But in some other cases they were like, Hey, you know, nothing's changed for me in <laughs> essence. And not only that, but I now kind of enjoy it more because we're on a level playing field. It's not right. like, Oh, there's an office where I know a bunch of people are hanging out and I'm remote. It's everyone's remote. You know, I mean, that said, I want to downplay the impact that it had on many people's personal lives. You had a lot of uh, a lot of people on our team who luckily uh, none of them had a um, couple of people think they might have had COVID, mm -hmm. though they were people who weren't on our office for it. So we know okay. it never affected anyone in our office. There were people who hadn't been in the office for at least two weeks or lived elsewhere in the country. Yeah. But they were all very mild cases. Uh, thank God. And uh and what we've seen, uh, you know, there there are people who are working through personal challenges in some cases, childcare issues, um, you know, uh, other similar cases. But we've been able to support those uh, those team members. But as a whole, we've seen our team's productivity has gone up, if wow. anything. And uh, we we have shipped, we've grown since then, and we've shipped a lot of new uh, a lot of new code since then. Mm -hmm. And and we know our customers have really uh, had to rely on us because it's been. Uh, it's been a crazy time for communicators these past six months. Yeah, and we've been going all out to uh, to support the uh, the PR pros that use Muckrack. Yeah, 
Well, I was wondering, I mean, from your perspective, what has this time been? You're, you, you and your company are so close to journalists. What has this time been like for the journalists and editors out there and people in the media? Super challenging. Uh, so as, as you probably have seen, a lot of journalists have been laid off, sadly. A lot of newsrooms have been closed. So that's tough. We're doing everything we can to support them. We actually saw the usage of our portfolio tool. Part of Muckrack is that we give journalists this free portfolio that automatically updates with their latest work. And we're the only, the, we're the only software um, provider in our category that does this. I saw that. Free public portfolios. And yeah, the, the traffic of the portfolios and the journalists' use of them has skyrocketed to never before seen levels. We get, we're getting millions great. of unique visitors a month. So yeah, we're I mean we're we are um, sad about the situation in journalism, but we're um, it feels meaningful to us to be able to play a role there and help a lot of these journalists. And the way that we work, even though the journalists don't pay us, we treat them as customers. So if a journalist emails us or tweets us like. They get just as good a customer support as the PR customers that we have. And our editors will actually go in for the journalists. They can either log in through the website and claim their profile, or they just email our editors like, hey, you know, I make sure you get this story on my profile or feature that one. Mm -hmm. Our editors will do it for them and get it up there very quick. So we're That's glad great. we're able to provide that support. We also launched a new tool called Muckrack Trends. Uh, which anyone can get to just muckrack.com slash trends. And we made it free for journalists. Uh, I mean, it's free for everybody. We first rolled it out free for journalists and we just made it so anyone can access it. And it's basically like Google trends for the news. So we probably all use Google trends. You mm -hmm. type in any keyword and you see how it trends over time, which is awesome. But uh, Google trends only tells you how things are trending in search volume. So something might be getting written about in the news, but no one might be searching for it because maybe our, you know, everyone knows about it from the news right. or vice versa. There might be a topic that everyone's searching for that, no, that the news isn't writing about yet. So this gives everybody a way, PR pros and journalists, a way to see, like, how is this actually trending in the news? And we had um, Pointer write it up, and, and they were also pointing out a use case for it, which I hadn't thought of, which is a lot of times people criticize the media and they're like, nobody's writing about this topic. Mm. Well, now we can actually see. And their point is you go in there and you see a lot of times when people are like, no one's talking about this in the media. You type that term into Muckrack Trends. Like, oh, wait, there are 3,000 articles about that last <laughs> month and it's trending up. So people are talking about it. That's or maybe so nobody great. really is talking about it. But now you can actually get to the Anyone can get to the bottom of that. And it gives journalists a free tool to actually publish the hard numbers on how, how much press something's getting that they can use in their own reporting. Yeah, that's amazing that you can just keep such a minute-to-minute -minute pulse on what's trending in the news. I mean, that's going to be unbelievably helpful for journalists as well as as well as well PR people as well. That's great. Yeah, we're, we're proud to uh, to put that software out there, and it's it uh, keeps us busy. We always love shipping new tools. Very, very cool. So what was it like? I mean, in addition to Muckrack, obviously, you are the founder of the Shorty Awards. And you guys did, I believe, for the first time, it was the first time the Shorty Awards were done remotely. What was that like? It was pretty wild. So our show was uh, early May. Mm -hmm. And for an event our size, I mean, it's usually an 800-person event. 
in, at the PlayStation Theater in Times Square here in Manhattan and got streamed out. And every year we got hundreds of thousands of people watching it live and millions watching on uh, YouTube and social media clips afterwards. So as you can imagine, we have a, a full-time team that works on it year round, plus a production company and a lot, of, a lot more people involved. So in February, when we heard, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so hard to remember because now it seems like a foregone conclusion. Like, mm. yeah, of course, you're not going to have an in-person event. But in February, that was like back when everyone was debating if South by Southwest should happen right. and all these other um, uh, conferences. So we saw that and we were like, oh, wait a minute, we might have to change all of our plans. And this is the 13th year of the Shorty Awards. We've done it in person every year. So, you know, it's a big thing to decide not to do something in person for the first time. But we made that call early. Again, we decided to get ahead of it before uh, you know it was absolutely mandated that you couldn't do an event. I mean, it was the inevitable thing that it couldn't happen, but yeah. we, we made the call sooner so we had more time to plan. Uh, but we still had to pretty much do the whole thing in two months. Also, you know, keep in mind now you could at least get a small production crew together outside or you know mm-hmm. go, go into someone's home or a small studio to film a bit with masks. But back back then... It yeah. was still like everybody has to do it in their home. It was like the height of fear. Yeah, nobody was going to do, well could be said, around a yeah. film crew or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we really had to adapt. At the same time, I, I kind of I, I kind of enjoyed the creative challenge of mm. it. It felt like the first year we were doing the Short Awards and that we had to figure out something that's never been done before. Oh, that's and that's exciting. the kind of challenge I like. Yeah, because you're such an entrepreneurial person and company that I imagine you all seem to thrive on those challenges, you know? Well said. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah, that's why I got into the shorty words to begin with 13 years ago. Social media was tiny. It seemed like an insane idea to start a social media word show, but we did it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I felt like we were kind of going back to our roots and having to be scrappy and doing a lot of problem solving. We got, uh, JB smooth who yep. plays He's Leon. Uh, yeah, Leon and Curve Your Enthusiasm, when, uh, who's Curve Your Enthusiasm is probably my favorite show that's running right now. And I think Leon, right right alongside uh, Larry David himself, or my favorite character on there. So I'm so I, glad I, they kept him on the show because there was a rumor that he was only going to be on. Apparently, he was going to be on for like one season and everybody just loved him so much. And they're, they're the producers and even Larry David were like, no, 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 no. He's he's moving in with Larry. He's going to be a staple of the show. And I'm so glad. Yeah, I remember that. that season where they introduced him along with his fa- And he was just one of a whole, uh, you know, I think the premise was they took in this family yep, from that's New Orleans right. and he was one of the, after Katrina, and he was just one of the family members. And yeah, he was just such... An amazing character. But he just never left. To Larry. Yeah, yeah, never left. No, I was like so excited to see that he hosted the shorty. And he was great. He was a great host. He can keep yeah, it going, you know, and, improv. Yeah, and to his credit, I mean, it, it was a wild thing working with him. So, of course, we never got to meet him in person. But we were, we were Zooming with him. He never, and he never, I mean, I think he, like most Hollywood talent, had never done anything like this. Because yeah. if you're a, an established actor, comedian, there's a production company that does it for you. It's mm-hmm. the YouTube influencers. They were used to, you know, filming their own thing and editing their own thing. But people like JB Smoove, who are professional comedians, they had production companies that, you know, the LA, the Hollywood scene is a highly specialized industry. And I think we saw that all change. Yeah. But we were on the vanguard of it. Like we even had to 
to get him some equipment, we we ordered it from Best Buy, and he uh, uh, and he was such a trooper for it. Uh, he drove to Best Buy. They brought it <laughs> to his car, just dropped it in, you know, mascot and everything. Nice. And then we had to get on Zoom, walk him through how to use it. But uh, yeah, really good, uh, great attitude. And and he did it live. We actually we filmed uh, we filmed because remember back then everybody was doing these live bits, and half of them would would mm-hmm. go off the rails because nobody knew what they were doing back then. Yeah. So we we pre-recorded everything as a backup because we had no idea what would happen. Oh, that's but smart. then uh, it all worked. So his whole his whole bit was uh, live, and I, I thought it was hilarious, and that he did a great job tying the show together. Yeah, he's super funny. And of course, coming up next month is the Shorty Social Good Awards, which I feel like this award ceremony has never been more relevant than than now, considering everything that's gone down in the last year. Um, I mean, now that you've arrived at your finalists, what are some of the common denominators of of the brands and companies that are really breaking through and, and doing some of the, the work that's most extraordinary that you guys are, are highlighting in the award ceremony? Yeah, you know, uh, I would say really it's, it's what people have seen is that they want, I guess, to back up, I think all the stuff that we we saw being done now is stuff that no brand would have touched with a 20-foot pole um, just 10 10 or 20 years ago, maybe with the exception of a couple avant-garde brands. Ben & Jerry, Starbucks were kind of at the vanguard of social issues. But most Mm -hmm. brands are like, why would I want to take a stand on anything and um, risk alienating any portion of my, uh, my customer base? I know. And I remember it's, now, that attitude feels so unheard of nowadays. Well said. Yeah. Now it's almost the opposite where uh, you risk alienating all of your customer base if you don't take <laughs> a stand on certain issues. So we've seen that shift happen in a major way. And, uh, you know, people are really holding brands accountable, uh, you know, looking for what they're doing to, uh, to make the world a better place, asking the brands what their real missions are and mm-hmm. what, what they really stand for. And, you know, when we um, when we were getting ready to launch Social Good, we were sure that entries would be down this year because every major ad holding company said they weren't going to enter awards uh, because of the economic devastation from COVID. And in general, people have cut, you know, marketing budgets mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of businesses are affected. And, and you know, we did have a lot of entrants that, that couldn't enter this year just because they weren't doing any work. You know, they were shut down, especially ones that did focus in travel and, and affected sectors like that. But yet we saw the entries. We actually got more entries this year than ever before. Wow. Which shocked us. And I think it's because social goods is the only marketing that matters now. Exactly. Like for a long time, like you couldn't run an ad where you're like, buy my home cleaner because it's the best home cleaner out there. It's better than the other brand at, you know, killing, uh, well, well, maybe you could have for killing that viruses, <laughs> but, but yeah. for, you know, for, for cleaning up bacteria or, or removing stains, nobody wanted to hear who's got the best product for removing stains. No. They want, you know, the message had to be, what are we doing, um, to kind of address societal issues. So, We've seen this shift uh, happen in a major way. And I think, you know, brands are really looking to show where they're, uh, you know, where they are at it, both for their their consumers, uh, but also and equally importantly for their employees. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just now it's just the cost of admission for brands nowadays to have a purpose, to have a mission and to be completely transparent about it or else just people, especially younger consumers, just simply don't want to purchase from brands who don't. And the brands who've been silent during this time period, those are the brands that people are suspect of. You know, now it's just that that mindset where oh, we don't want to speak out because we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to alienate any customer base. It is just so gone by the wayside. And I think it's only going to get it's only going to get better. You know, only more. It's it's only going to be a matter of more brands stepping up to the plate, standing for something. Because I think it's the brands who are in such a place to make the real changes because they not only reach so many people, not only have you know so much access to capital, but they're so ingrained in the lives of people that they're the ones who I think are going to are going to step up and make some of the real changes, you know, in the context of lasting social change. Mark Benioff said that that, uh, you know, companies and brands are some of the effect of companies and brands are now kind of a, you know, a greater force for change than than government. And, oh, you know, totally. You can debate. You can de- debate the nuances of that, but definitely brands have a huge effect. And yeah, if you think about how, you know, how a social network decides how its algorithm works, or, you know, even how Apple packages their next phone or your computer, that could have, you know, as big an impact on you as, you know, a certain government regulation, particularly if that regulation isn't written in a, uh, in a smart way, or if the regulator in charge of it doesn't do a vigorous job enforcing it. Mm -hmm. So there's a a large degree, I think, where, you know, if a company decides to do something, it can do it with uh, inefficiency and a speed that is rarely seen from government. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's it. Exactly. I think there's there's too much red tape with, with the government, too many approvals are needed. Uh, but I think it's, it's the large companies, it's the enterprises that are going to be able to actually make the, make the big, big changes and i feel like for brands who are on the fence or trying to figure out how to approach change i think they just have to watch the shorty social good awards you know best in class examples i mean it's the the award ceremony is such a an intensive kind of master class in orchestrating cause campaigns so you know it's it's fantastic that you guys are doing that what where did the idea come from to begin with because you had the shorty awards for about eight years up until you decided to also do the shorty social good awards that's right. So we launched the Shorty Awards, uh, first ever award to honor the best work on social media and still the largest. And then actually what happened was we were, um, we were doing some analysis of our entries in our categories and we had a social good category. Mm-hmm. We found that the social good category was the most entered category by brands. Mm. And it kind of blew us away because, you know, now it now it seems obvious. I mean, with everything we just talked about but five years ago, it's like, wait, what's happening here? Yeah. You know, you'd think brands would be about who's selling, who's selling the most, the most innovative integrated campaign right. or uh, best use, you know, best presence on YouTube. But no, it was social good. And we're like, what's happening here? So we did a lot of it. We, we interviewed a lot of our academy members who are the ones who judge the awards. Uh a lot of the entrants, you know, executives, we influencers. And we saw that, that like that really resonated. We saw early on that like even five years ago, brands were really starting to think about what they were doing for social good. They Mm -hmm. realized it mattered to consumers and their own employees. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of the vanguard of that, but we kind of caught that early. And, And we saw actually at the time, a lot of other award shows were, 
were had were banning that. You know, the way that really? award shows used to yeah, oh, the way that award shows used to think about it was uh, they'd think of these corporate social responsibility um, campaigns and, and social good's a bigger term than corporate resp social responsibility, but that people used to call it CSR. Yep. So, you know, maybe you're an oil company, you've got your CSR program to, you know, you're donating a couple grand to some great nonprofit. <laughs> and then you do this nice little campaign about right. your little, you know, about your CSR initiative. And then you enter that into award shows and try to win that way. And a lot of the award shows reaction was like, that's not real work. You're, you're here to sell, <laughs> you're here to sell oil. Right. Nobody's going to forget about your... that spill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like give, give us your real campaign that you're using to market your oil. Don't show us your CSR campaign right. that you, you did for good looks. Yeah. And I, I think it was well intended, you know, to the extent that they thought the, that uh, a CSR initiative was disingenuous mm -hmm. and some of them are. But they're also, you know, the some social good campaigns are real. There are a lot of brands, you know, you look at, I mean, going back to, you know, Ben and Jerry's or, or you know, uh, with their environmental stand, Starbucks with their uh, stand on, you know, a, a living wage and paying people, um, paying, you know, paying the baristas more and creating educational opportunities to newer brands like Method and Tom Shoes and, you know, countless others where the brand is completely built around purpose yeah. and then also people discovering purpose in brands that have been around for longer and realizing they need to reposition to stay uh stay current i think we saw five years ago that like hey it's not just csr and we shouldn't be banning it we should actually elevate it but also uh hold it to, to stronger standards absolutely yeah, I feel like for a lot of brands who want to do the obligatory CSR campaign, they're terrified because they think now it's going to they're going to be accused of pink washing or green washing or rainbow washing or now there's covid washing. But then there's just such a nuance between the brands who you know are doing it for the sake of getting new, uh, or getting the the press from it and the brands who are whose heart is really in it. And I feel like it goes back to the DNA of the brand. I mean, if if I think if there's a cause built into the DNA of the brand, Tom Shoes method, you know, like the brands you'd mentioned, then, you know, game over in a good way. You know, that's that is above and beyond just doing a CSR campaign to make yourself look good. And I feel like the brands who get that are the ones who are going to thrive, particularly during this time. But it's been interesting during COVID. I mean, we we assembled a whole white paper about like over 100 examples of brands who just did wonderful stuff during COVID in really in entertaining and creative ways that also really gave back to the community and yeah, there's brands are figuring it out, you know, and I, I think they're the, they're the ones who are going to be able to to make the big changes you know, in the context of all of this. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I think uh, it, it's changing the it, you know, it's really like a, a full on pivot for a lot of brands because so many brands, I think we're running on autopilot for a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Just, hey, you know us because we're the best best way to clear your clogged drain and that's it never mind all the chemicals and you just run on autopilot all of a sudden you're out accountable maybe you actually have to change the formula maybe you have to change the leadership uh maybe you have to change a lot and and in business there are all the times there there are times a business has to fundamentally change and coming from the tech world like we've seen so many tech businesses have to change or die and many uh -huh. of them die some of them change you know you look at intel had a huge reinvention from being oh, yeah. memory to microprocessors. Uh, 
you know, Facebook, regardless of what you think about their mission, uh, right. did successfully pivot from the desktop to mobile. Uh, Microsoft pivoted from operating systems to being this kind of conglomerate of uh -huh. software. Uh, but then there are a lot of businesses that didn't make it MySpace and all that. And I think that's kind of what every business is facing now. It's this new pivot um, to having to have a meeting uh, and going back to a mission and some some will make it and i think some will transform you know in an amazing way like the companies i described in, in the tech analogy mm -hmm. and some won't and that's just the you know the darwinian process of business yeah yeah it's interesting to observe i think the the big pivots particularly when they pivot towards being more cause oriented is it's pretty fascinating i think more and more brands are going to do it yeah so with Shorty Awards, I'm sorry, with the Shorty Social Good Awards, you just added five new categories, which I wanted to make a note of. Healthcare and pharma, fitness and wellness, um, TikTok, community and employee engagement, and podcast under content and strategy, which is pretty exciting. So you, it sounds like that you, you're, they're just growing and growing, the overall series, of, the overall categories of the awards, as well as the award ceremony, which is great. I mean, it indicates there's more and more social good that brands are doing. So, you know, that gives us all a lot of hope. <laughs> so speaking of, um, speaking of podcasts, you just did the first episode in about 10 years for your own Venture Voice podcast with none other than Mark Cuban. No big deal. How <laughs> um, I listened to the interview. It was really, really fantastic. He's not only a muckrack user, but he is a personal user. He uses it himself. You'd think a billionaire like that would have you know, legions of people or an agency who could do it, but he logs in, he checks it out. Like he's very hands-on, which is pretty, pretty interesting. You can never be too big or too wealthy to worry about PR and to do your <laughs> PR. And, you know, I, 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 I've always been a student of business as you could tell what got me interested in doing this, this podcast in the first place. And, you know, you read the biography of Steve jobs. He would, he would call up Walt, Walt Mossberg, the, at the time, the Wall Street Journal tech um, columnist, every Sunday to tell him what his plans were at Apple. And this was mm. when he was coming back to Apple after Steve Jobs was a billionaire because he realized PR was important, that, yeah. that you had to tell a story. And you look at a lot of the top, uh, you can see on, on Twitter, Mark Benioff, the CEO of uh, Salesforce, who I referenced before, multi-multi-billionaire, constantly interacting with journalists on Twitter. And I think it's a sign that, you know, you have to realize as a CEO, your job is to communicate and journalists are an extremely important part of that. Even if you have your own big Twitter following as Benioff does, as Mark Cuban does, it still matters what's written about you in the press, how journalists view you. And I think that's why, uh, you know, we, we've seen Mark Cuban and uh, as I talk about with him on the podcast. He, he's a strong believer in doing it himself. He was doing it with his uh, first company. He did it a lot with his second company, Broadcast.com, mm -hmm. as he talks about. But he still does it now, <laughs> even though he, he could easily afford to do nothing but uh, count his money at this point. <laughs> because he wants, to, he wants to affect change in the world. He's got a, you know, and, he, a, and he's got a 3,000-person organization between uh, the Dallas Mavericks group and landmark theaters and all the other businesses he owns. So he feels responsibility and needs to communicate with the uh, media about it. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I think it was either Bill Gates or Warren Buffett who said if I had only a few dollars left, I would spend it on PR, indicating just the importance of PR. But um, yeah, it's it's it makes a lot of sense because he is he, he has to completely nobody's going to take care of his image 
of himself and his company in the media better than himself. And I feel like it's a you know rally cry to all of those CEOs out there who think that they're too busy. I mean, talk, you, they have to talk to the press. They have to get their hands dirty with PR. You know, it yeah, makes- and it's a big part of the message we push. So we think it's important to uh, have PR teams. And, and you know we find just about all of these, these uh, the billionaires that we reference, they have massive PR teams. Yeah. That you still have to be involved in the same way that like you're not – no one says, oh, well, I have a finance team, so I don't bother looking at the books of my company. Right. You're like, no, as you're the CEO, you still look at the books, even though yeah. you might have the, a great, great CFO and a large finance team. I think same with PR. Like, you have to be, as CEO, you need to be involved in telling the company's story, and you want to have an amazing PR team that you work with to do that. But mm-hmm. you, still, you still have to be there. You still have to be crafting the message. And it's always more powerful when the CEO is willing to get on the phone with the journalist or, or be involved in crafting the message versus only having a spokesperson uh, say it. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. So does this mean that Venture Voice is officially back? Because I know for a while there, I mean, it had been on hold because I, uh, I, I know the time commitment. I've run two podcasts, so I know the time commitment. And I know for you, it was like 10 hours an episode, which makes sense. I mean, the time scheduling, the time researching, the time actually talking, the time to edit, the time to you know write it up. It's very time. If you do it right, it's very time consuming. But is, is Venture Voice back? It's officially back. So I'm, awesome. I'm committed to publishing a new, uh, new episode every two weeks. Uh, some of them I'm going to kind of alternate between new ones and republishing old episodes. So yeah, I saw the Reed Hoffman one, which was cool. Yeah, and it was That's cool right. to that was, breathe new life that, into that. Yeah, that was so fun because I hadn't listened to that podcast since I put it out. Going back, that podcast was from 2006 when LinkedIn had 56 employees. Oh, my and God. only 7 million users. By comparison, today they have 700 million users and thousands of thousands of employees. So it's so fun to go back and Reed Hoffman says all this stuff that's oddly prescient where mm. you can tell he he's totally thinking about like the motivations of why you'd want to be on a professional social network. And, you know, back then it was like well, nobody would put their resume online. It made you look <laughs> desperate for a job. And yet he convinced everyone to, in essence, put their resume online in the form of a LinkedIn profile. So it's revisiting. I'm also excited to do, do new ones. And for me, it's part of my exploration because uh, I'm I'm 100% focused on growing muckrack and the shorties, but a big part of growing muckrack is thinking about like how do organizational leaders need to think about communication. So that's why I felt like this podcast Venture Voice would be the uh, the perfect way to do that, and mm-hmm. it gave me that opportunity uh, to talk to Mark Cuban not just about his entrepreneurial journey, but the role communications played in it. And I've got a bunch of other great guests lined up uh, to talk about you know, similar, uh, the similar thing, looking at their entrepreneurial journey of how they built uh, large businesses. The mm-hmm. next one will actually be with someone who started a, uh, what's now a $30 billion public SaaS company. Whoa. Uh, but with that lens of how, how, do, you, how do you deal with communications uh, throughout the process? Oh, that's interesting. So it's going to be, it's mostly going to be with founders, but basing or, or focusing on how communications contributed to the success of their company or building their company. Exactly. And then, and that's, and in a very meta way, that's why they're getting out of podcasts with me, right? There you go. They still communicate and get, and get their message out there to people. Yeah. (laughs) 
So last few questions. I mean, during this time, this has been a very challenging time for a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, and leaders. Were there any major leadership lessons, um, either of your own or that you observed from other business leaders that uh, were particularly formidable for you during this difficult time period? Yeah, there were there were definitely a lot of lessons I took out of it. Uh, you know, one was uh, just remembering to over communicate. I think there's so much where to me, you know, I knew the company was in a um, in a good place. I mean, mm -hmm. it was definitely scary at the time, but um, you know, we were very committed to doing everything we could to avoiding layoffs, and uh, we were able to over communicate to that to the team at a time when a lot of other companies were doing layoffs. So kind of creating that psychological safety for the team was really mm -hmm. important. But even so, it was we were doing surveys and getting feedback. And I found when I thought I'd over communicated, I, I really hadn't. I, mm. I, you know, it's I felt like, oh, I repeated it three times. So I'm done. And it's just this reminder that like you, if you have an important message to get out there, you have to keep repeating it. Yeah. And got a lot of great feedback from the team. Uh, another was one was with the um, <clears throat> how rapid you need to be to respond to social movements now where, uh, you know, we saw internally like our team really wanted to know our own take on, on social movements that that were happening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we learned, we adapted very quickly, but, you know, I, I'm the first to admit, like, we weren't fast enough. Like, you, you know, it's really like things can, you know, the expectations of a company can change within hours now right. versus weeks. So, uh, you know, it took me a little while to, to get that through my head. Luckily, you know, we got, we got there and, uh, and you know we can see in the engagement surveys we did with our own team that that we took people along with us but you know that was definitely a challenge for us and then by extension for all of our customers since we're a, a platform that helps people with communications helping them through all these crises and we have we have a major healthcare system that uses muckrack to do their pr mm -hmm. and our head of customer success uh went went into real overdrive and she spent uh just above and beyond, you spend hours and hours helping them. Usually we're just software people use, but they were in a jam, their healthcare system, they were out of beds. Whoa. And she 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 has stayed up late and like helped them put together reports for a board meeting to show, you know, what the public response was for this. And wow. there, there are lots of stories like that in our company where we were just like, hey, you know, if we got we have, if we have a, a company in need that uh, you know has essential workers, like we just gotta do whatever it takes, even yeah. if it's beyond the bounds of what you traditionally expect from your software vendor. That's amazing to, to, to value your customers that much. That's yeah, that's above and beyond. That's, that's great. Cool. So as when it comes to entrepreneurship, obviously it's a topic you're very interested in. You're a successful entrepreneur yourself. Were there any resources or books or anything that was particularly formidable for you on your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, we're, there, there are uh, several that, that have had a big impact and I should go, Go back to say that when I started, actually, when I started my podcast in 05, there was very little media about entrepreneurship. You know, mm. there was Inc. Magazine and Entrepreneur, and most of their articles were 500 words. And that was it. There isn't this environment now of lots of podcasts and blogs and, you know, even Shark Tank to, yep. to kind of guide you through the experience. But even now, I got to say, there's a lot on just how to, how to get started or how to raise your first money. 
but there is very little good stuff on how to actually scale a company. You know, mm. how do you guide, how do you build your team and guide your managers and deal with all the really hairy issues and actually growing a business. My absolute favorite book is High Output Management. Mm. It was written by Andy Grove in the 80s. He was at the time, he was a, a extremely impressive guy. He was a immigrant from Hungary. He had to come over on his own without his parents as a I believe he's a teenager um, to uh, you know first escape uh, the Nazis during the Holocaust, Whoa. and then he escaped. Um, My grandfather was that way. He came from Hungary, and he was Jewish, wow. and he escaped the Holocaust when he was a teenager. I wonder if they knew each other. Yeah, well, separately, uh, Andy Grove also wrote a great memoir called Swimming Across that, wow. uh, that I think you would enjoy for that reason. Okay, I got to check that out. But he came here. He was... I, I believe the first employee at Intel. Uh, so he was with, you know, Noyce and the, the founding team. Oh, wow. And then he became the CEO. And uh, he wrote this. Um, it's just a, a wonderful book where he starts at the beginning and he's like, this book isn't for the leaders. It's for the middle managers. Hmm. Because he's like that act of just managing in a company. He's like, that's really what the business is. Yeah. And really what affects the average person at a company so much, right? You're, you know, you're not really affected by your CEO or your board or the statement that's put out. You're affected by your manager. If yeah. your manager is awesome, your, your job is probably good. And if your manager is awful, it doesn't matter what company you're at. Your life is hell. So he wrote it for the middle manager. And he's got just all this practical advice, extremely thoughtful um, ideas, you know, even going down to the level of like how often do you meet with your reports? How long are the meetings? What do you say during them to the very principles of production? Hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I just found it's an extremely powerful book. A uh, couple of parts of it are dated. Like he has one part in it where he's like, there's a new technology coming out that might revolutionize management called email. <laughs> Since it was the, the 80s. Time for I mean, a new he was edition. way ahead of his time bringing right. that up in the, uh, in the 80s. But, you know, for the most part, nothing's really changed since the 80s, right? It's how you interact with your reports. Are you communicating the vision? Are you setting goals? Are you, are you um, staying connected with them? Are, are you setting up good processes? Are you transparent about your priorities? So I'd say more than any other book, I think that one's still the best. And for any entrepreneur who's like at that point where you're like, you're in it and you're grinding along and you got a couple employees and you don't know what to do. Like mm -hmm. he really lays it out. And I'd recommend it too, to just really anyone who's in a position of any leadership at any company. That sounds great. Yeah. Cause I mean, management is everything, particularly as you start to, I mean, you can't scale without proper management and then you have to be a good manager and then you have to kind of teach your new managers how to be the kind of manager that you were. You, I mean, that's scaling essentially, but yeah, that sounds fantastic. I will check that out. Great. Well, Greg, this was this whole lot of fun. Thank you as always. What are you up to next? What's what's on the horizon for you? We've got a lot of functionality coming out with Muckrack. Our big priority is we announced that we we've launched this new what we're calling a PRM system, mm -hmm. which stands for Public Relations Management, and it's a um, a spin on the idea of CRM, Customer Ooh. Relationship Management. And you think about it, every sales team now, really every business uses CRM to track their, their interactions with customers. You know, you want it in a database, you want it centralized. Yep. No, you don't have two salespeople call the same person. If a, if a long time customer calls you, you want to be able to review your past interactions with them. 
better for the customers, better for the businesses. And you'd be hard pressed to find a credible sales team that doesn't use CRM. Yeah. Yet in PR, we find that most PR teams don't use any kind of system to track their relationships with journalists uh, beyond maybe an Excel spreadsheet. Right. So even if they were using software like uh, like ours or any media database, they, they'd kind of look up who to contact there and maybe send the initial email, which is functionality we've had for over a decade. Mm-hmm. But they would not use it to... Uh, to, you know, know the whole relationship with the journalist that would then go to Excel. So right. we built the whole Excel, your of, biggest competitor. Exactly. We're going straight up against uh, Bill Gates and uh, Microsoft there, but there'll, there'll still be other uses for Excel. So don't feel too bad. Right. Right. Uh, you can stay long Microsoft, but we're going, um, we're building specialized tools for that. Uh, you know, so for example, you know, journalists complain all the time, like, Oh, I just got pitched by this person at, at, at a company, but their colleague just pitched me the day before and right. they're just not talking to each other. So I'm getting more spam or I told them six months ago, I don't cover this topic. And now they're pitching me on this topic. I, I told them I don't cover six months ago. Yeah. So with Muckrack now you can track all those uh, relationship notes right in the software. Each customer gets their own kind of instance of Muckrack so they can store all this data it's private to only their team and encrypted so only their team can see it. Mm-hmm. And then they can uh, share all these notes. Even when they're emailing with the journalists, they can automatically have those emails pulled straight into the Muckrack profile so they don't have to spend any time doing data entry. Yeah. And then see what their colleagues were up to. And now that everyone's remote, it's really important because you can't be like, oh, hey, who here uh, emailed Kara Swisher uh, in the last <laughs> month? But you just go to her profile on Muckrack and you'll see, oh, my colleague emailed her last week, so I better not email her again or let me at least see what the interaction was. Or maybe, my, you know, I have another colleague who knows her extremely well, so let me ask that colleague to reach out to her rather than me reach out to her. So yeah. it gives you all this intelligence and you no longer have to keep bugging your teammates throughout the day. Who knows this? Who knows that? Yes. And then it also lets PR people take a vacation because now you can go on on vacation and and all your relationships and knowledge are in this central place, so you know your colleagues aren't going to uh, trample over your relationships while you're uh, while you're off on vacation. Yeah, it makes so much sense. It's funny. I a few months ago, I because I use HubSpot for sales and marketing related stuff, and uh, our CEO basically tasked me with getting the media team onto HubSpot to use HubSpot for CRM purposes for their PR and pitching efforts. Just keep a centralized database of all of our media contacts and be able to see who's emailing who and track open rates and stuff like that. And then we discovered, wait, Muckrack does this. So yeah, so now we're on Muckrack. (laughs) Well said. And you know, we love love HubSpot. We actually use HubSpot as our CRM. Oh yeah. Uh, But the problem with using HubSpot um, for the use case you described is that, well, one, it's dangerous to put the journalists in the same system as the customers. Yeah. The last thing you want is your your sales or marketing team accidentally emailing the journalists. That'll, right. that'll piss off in a big way. <laughs> and and then also, you, know, you might be sharing sensitive information with the journalists or your public company releasing earnings. Like you don't want your whole sales team to have access to that. And then, uh, you know, the third thing that's even bigger is these journalists uh, are, are always changing jobs and changing titles. In Muckrack, we automatically update that for you. Yeah. So if this journalist changes, you know, from um, Bloomberg to the Wall Street Journal, 
our editors update that. And actually, Muckrack sends you an email notifying you that, hey, this journalist on your email list changed jobs mm -hmm. and here's their new info. Versus in HubSpot, if you put them all in there, now you've got to hire another person on your team to keep updating all these records in HubSpot and it's all this extra work. So we saw we're a huge fan of HubSpot. We saw this is a new use case. And we were actually honored that um, we just got this write up in this publication called The Sword and the Script where the writer called us the HubSpot of PR. Oh, that's great. Which we, we took as a big compliment. That's great, yeah. Furthering towards your PRM system. <laughs> that's great. Cool. Well, Greg, thank you as always. It's always great talking to you. I uh, really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, really, really excited for the social Shorty Social Good Awards. And everybody listening, you should tune in November 15th, 19th, November 19th. Greg, thanks again. Thanks for having me, Nick. Take care. You too. All right. Thank you, as always, for listening to Damn Good Brands. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. And to learn more about Lippy Taylor, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening to Damn Good Brands. Damn Good Brands.